Welcome back to Hard Out with myself, Jay Thornton, Michael Gaw, and our guest, Jean-Marie Spacuza. How you doing? Doing okay, except my house is possessed. Yeah, we were just uh, doing a little chit-chat before we started the timer, and you said something about chanting with monks and thinking your house is haunted, so let's hear about that. <laughs> well, I just, I, I go up to this um, this place called Kamaldoli in the mountains of Big Sur, and you get no phone reception and no internet, and you're just like chanting all the time and looking at the beautiful ocean. But this time when I got back, all these weird things were going on. I sent a meme that was supposed to be really cuddly and it turned into like a hate meme. And I was like, how did that happen? And then and then my sink overflowed and my custom made suit didn't fit. I was like, if I start seeing blood dripping from the walls, I'm like out of here. So you curse yourself <laughs> by going to some retreat. Yeah, yeah. It's weird. I got the, the name of this place. Event. My life What's is boring. The, oh, I could use some, the, you know. <laughs> it's called the it's called the Kamaldoli Hermitage. It's in the mouth. It's like it's like just above, like two miles up from the ocean in the mountains. It's it's absolutely amazing. Like it was such an amazing experience. And then I came back here and I was like, is it Los Angeles? Is it something in the water? I don't know. I don't another get strange place full of hauntings, Los Angeles, right? Go this on, has you never guys. happened to me before. I, I don't I'm freaked out. I'm like, <laughs> let's go. So we've never met. Go, you guys have worked together, right? Do you want to tell yeah, us how you guys did. met? We did the Scarapist together. Um, Gene uh, wrote and conceptualized and, and wrote this, uh, this thriller film about based on a real life experience she had had. And uh, I went in and auditioned. And I, remember, I remember the audition. There it is, the Scarapist. Uh, I remember I went in and auditioned and part of my audition was that I had to pick her up physically and like carry her. <laughs> um, and uh, back then I was able to do that. Now I'm having like this, this <laughs> violent sciatica thing going on right now. And oh, I, yeah, I would drop you down a flight of stairs so fast. If, uh, that, if I had to do that now. That actually might've made a good plot point too. <laughs> <laughs> right, right. How's the movie doing? Oh, it's interesting. Um, last last summer, we went on to Amazon Prime, and uh, for the second time, we were featured on Amazon Prime, and we were getting over one million viewing minutes a month. Now, what's considered to be a peak is over 100,000 viewing minutes a month. We were getting 10 times Crazy. what's considered to be peak. So I started getting the royalties, which were $220 a month, for which I thought, well, this sucks. <laughs> they had us in the advertising, they had us on social media, they were getting subscribers, they were getting clicks. And so I, I remember I was doing a, meeting with Liz Ashel. Liz Ashel is a filmmaker who did a film, a comedy called Bread and Butter that was picked up uh, by Orchard and did really, really well, sufficient that she was hired to work at Sundance Institute in their distribution division. And she's also worked for other distributors. She's now doing production consulting for other filmmakers. So she's considered to be a success story. And when I told her this, her jaw dropped. And I said, I know, isn't that terrible? And she said, no, that's like three times what my movies are making across platforms on all platforms. And I was like, so you're telling me that that's like a mega success. And I am like able to make an interest payment with what I'm making. Yeah, mega success in this indie do-it-yourself space or whatever, going through streamers where you get fractions you know, of pennies, like the office space Superman three thing doesn't amount to much. It's crazy. And so, and so we started talking and I said, well, here's the thing. Cause she said, well, would you consider a traditional distribution be a deal for night rain? And I said, I would, because it would be flattering 
but I'd be crazy because it sucks <laughs> because you don't you don't make money. So it's a, it's very validating as a filmmaker to get a traditional distribution deal. But, you know, it's sort of like Stockholm syndrome because you're embracing the, the people who are exploiting you. And so I explained to her and I can tell you guys this because it's being announced today that for the last several months, um, after launching the first fully woman-owned studio last year, Seasons and Amused Studios in Hollywood, the first fully woman-owned studio in Hollywood, we're now about to launch in November the first fully woman-owned streaming platform that's designed for filmmakers and artists. We call it the Studio Club named after the famed studio club that was a residence to and dormitory to contract, female contract players in Hollywood in the day. In fact, Marilyn Monroe at one point lived there and it was considered a safe haven. So we figure we're this probably the safest haven out there. Um, <laughs> so it's pretty exciting. We're sort of being watched by a number of people to see is, you know, is this gonna be just a crazy notion or is this gonna be like the next wave of independent film distribution, I guess we're about to find out. Yeah, I mean, it's interesting. It sounds cool. Um, I always wonder too, like those dormitories for contract actresses, was that a safe haven for them or like a stocked fishing pond for the moguls, you know? <laughs> but uh, <laughs> well, the, the uh, problem is getting yeah. your word out there, right? You got to make people aware this thing exists. And that's the problem. Well, the same with Amazon. It's like they don't pay shit to anyone because they don't need your movie. It's all just a deluge of content that they throw in there. They don't need our movies you know what i mean they used to netflix and amazon and these uh, you know some of these other platforms hbo max warner well, then they started they making used their own content. To. they used yeah. to but then right they started making their own content and what's worse and michael will be will attest to this because there's one thing that doesn't lie it's a calendar when the scarapist started making its way into the festival circuit and ultimately into a limited theatrical release and then streaming um, at the same time that that was going on. One of our actresses, Katie Colleton, she was her show Teachers uh, was picked up by TV Land, her and her improv group. Now, her uh, showrunners were the executive producers of Key and Peele. And nice. I had been communicating with her agency. And we also sent the Scarapist to Blumhouse for consideration of a franchise. And they politely and very respectfully passed and then took a lot of the hypnosis content from the scarabist and basically plucked it, plunked it into get out. Uh, and when Jordan Peele was being interviewed about where he got that content from, he rather disingenuously said he got it from Silence of the Lambs. I don't know about you guys, but there is no freaking hypnosis content in Silence of the Lambs at all. So whoever coached him on that didn't do a very good job. And now we've seen <laughs> things like, yeah. And now we've seen things like Split and Unstained and, you know, uh, what's the latest uh, Don't Worry Darling, Smile. All of these things are literally drawn from The Scarapist. The Scarapist was like this huge smash into psychological thriller, true crime, because prior to The Scarapist, you basically had mostly psychological thrillers that were called that because they were just tamer than traditional horror movies. There wasn't necessarily psychological content or true crime content and all these other things that are going on now. So now, I'm not going to get credit advocate. for that. Oh, What's right. that? Go ahead. Oh, I was going to say, I'm not going to get credit for that because I'm independent. I'm not industry per se, uh, not in the traditional sense. So they're going to say they got it from this, that, or the other, but we all know where they got it from because like I said, there's a calendar and there are some things that are just self-evident. So it's pretty cool to have created this kind of new wave of all of this material that's out there now. But unfortunately, you don't see the kind of paychecks that these people see. Yeah. So you're still kind of like going, what do we do? So you're that's right about getting the word out. And, and we're trying, we're working on that. But I'm sorry to interrupt you. Well, I was just going to say, I was interrupting you, but to devil's advocate, because that's a bomb you drop when you're like, basically all these people cribbed your stuff. Do you think it's truly a matter of that, that they pulled a William Burroughs artist theft? Or do you think it was maybe parallel development that you were working in something that was zeitgeisty and everybody else had these similar, you straight up. Right? <laughs> Hi, Jack. You got Hi, DJ Whiteclaw, dude. <laughs> <laughs> 
Yeah. And Michael's a part of that. So he knows like it's it. I remember, in fact, when I was going to places like American Film Market and talking to sales agents and they would the first thing they would say is not what's the story. They would say um, they would ask who's in it. And I would say, well, the, the story's the star and they'd roll their eyes and I'd say and it's, you know, multi genre and they'd look panicked, you know, and so things like noir, because it was actually Jeremy Walker who was the publicist um, who did, um, he originally worked for Klein and White, who were most famous for starting on uh, Sex, Lies and Videotape and ending on the Blair Witch Project. They basically really innovated independent film uh, publicity. And Jeremy wor worked for them as did Kim Dixon. And Jeremy Walker called the Scarapist the new noir, which you have to remember at that time, the word noir we're talking about 2014 before, you know, right before it came out. That was a dirty word in the commercial world. The word noir was just not used. Now it's used all the time. We forget this. Even in LA Confidential, they would not dare identify it as a neo-noir, even though that's what it was, because that was considered to be non-commercial. The other thing that was non-commercial was two female leads. I was actually being pressed to make the therapist a male character, which would have completely changed the story. The other thing, multi-genre was unheard of. That was really, really hard to have something you couldn't categorize in a specific way, in a specific genre. So all of these things were just, you wouldn't touch it. Now we take it for granted that that's used in marketing everywhere. That's also a result of the Scarabist. Yeah. Interesting. Yeah. Now this is the all inside baseball, not... very industry okay. inside baseball type stuff. I'm curious, what got you into this whole racket? Like, have oh, you always been a filmmaker? Is this something you came to later in life? Or? Insanity. Insanity. Yeah. Got Tell me about track. that. I want to hear about the insanity. <laughs> you have to be great. I, well, here's the interesting thing is it was based on a misnomer. Now, I'm currently working with Linda Phillips Paolo, who was the casting director for the Coppola family. Uh, she won the CSA award for the Virgin Suicides. She cast the Rainmaker. She's basically responsible for bringing Matt Damon into the wider Hollywood circle. Matt Damon certainly had done some very good work. I think it was Courage Under Fire, where he played yeah, like a strong adult. Yeah. yeah, but that he was basically doing a lot of smaller and secondary roles. She insisted. And Francis Ford Coppola wanted him to audition as well, apparently. But the uh, the brass and the the, the suits didn't really weren't really interested. And she pretty much insisted and put her job on the line for it. And the rest is history. I thought that Matt Damon and Ben Affleck really had written uh, Goodwill Hunting the way the script was read and ultimately played out in the movie. I was wrong. So I come to L.A. with a script under my arm thinking I'm going to be like Matt Damon and Ben Affleck. I don't realize that they've got CA agents and they've got people like Rob Reiner um, helping them ghostwrite their screenplay. Because Linda told me he, she has the original and it's nothing like what Original draft doesn't he end up like on the run from the CIA or something? Like, yeah, something, like yeah, save the world. There are elements of it, but basically she said, no, what you're seeing on the screen is, and that's probably what prompted Matt Damon to say famously after the um, the Oscars, uh, when he was holding his Oscar standing next to Ben Affleck and they asked him, how does he feel? And he said, I feel like the Millie Vanilli of screenwriters. We can never really forget <laughs> what that really meant when he said that. I feel like the Millie Vanilli of screenwriters. So I got into this business kind of on a lie. I believed the PR at the time. Of course, now I know better. Were you trying to act in your own film? Did you come out? Right. right. Exactly. I wrote this script about a woman named Hildegard von Bingen from the 12th century. And so you're an actor. I so you are insane. You're right. I am completely insane. So I started out as an actress. I started acting at the age of six. I started, I wrote my first play at the age of 10 and I had a and daughter at It was 17. stolen by Robert Redford and it became ordinary people. It's amazing. <laughs> Even at the age of 10, they were taking my stuff. I mean, what the, what is this? And so, and so um, I, I moved out to Los Angeles in my twenties with this screenplay under my arm, thinking I was going to be like the next Matt Damon and Ben Affleck. And of course, well, interestingly enough, I got really far. I had met, met with Jason Ramsey. I'd met with Michelle Crum of Miramax Films. Uh, I'd met with Ewan McGregor. And then came the fated meeting. This was the fated meeting. I, met, I won't mention her name, but I met with a, a high-level executive at Miramax who had an intercom next to her. And she said to me, so everything looks great. What are you willing to do to get this movie made? 
And I said, well, I'm from the Midwest and I'm a very hard worker. And she's just, well, no, no, no. She's got to stop me. She said, no. She said, what are you willing to do to get this movie made? And I went, oh no, I'm not that kind of actress. <laughs> and the result was, um, okay, well, we'll con continue to track your film as a potential acquisition, but we're not going to produce this movie. And I said, well... It was that bold and just... Yeah. And then I said, well, um, okay, well, um, could I get a letter of intent about the distribution? Because I thought having a letter of intent for Miramax was just about as good as having money in the bank at the time. Little did I know. She kind of went, sure. <laughs> and I didn't know what the sure meant at the time but when i took this letter around it was basically like a plaque that said that i'd said no to harvey weinstein and when you say no to harvey weinstein you say no to all his friends so basically i started working on other projects one of them making angels we almost we almost got that produced and then in 2008 we had the economic collapse and so then i got to scarapist and so it's been an interesting journey of different little like segues and it's a fascinating business it's a beautiful and ugly business at the same time i love it i hate it it makes me sick i want to fly it's great i mean no wonder we're crazy i think it was john cusack who said how is anyone in this business not manic um speaking of john cusack i developed a really great friendship with patrice and paul quinn aiden quinn's brother um and uh, sadly he passed away but you meet some remarkable people in this business. They're not all skeezy, um, <laughs> present company included. Um, but it's it's not an easy business, and there's a lot of money involved. Well. <laughs> oh. And there's a lot of money involved, you know. And so you're you're going to run into some pretty intense things in your in your lifetime. One of the best one of the best things that came out of this too was meeting Tommy Wiseau. Um, <laughs> like. I, I mean, full disclosure, <laughs> we were trying to get him on this show. He declined. Okay, I'll tell you, you how he the declined. contact. Here you are. <laughs> I told Michael how he declined. We He declined over an hour and a half telephone conversation with me where there were actually, I, to, I told I told uh, Michael that it was a three douchebag phone call <laughs> because basically he he's not afraid to be vocal about the fact that he's had bad podcast experiences. And I, you know, oh, it's like, sure. he's like, he's like, it's not personal, but it's like, he just, he just, it, you know, he's just not been doing pods and he's focusing on big shark. And he said, you know, cute girl, cute girl, not influence me. I not fall for your feminine charms. And I was just like, I'm just asking if you want to do a podcast. I don't yeah. want, I'm not trying to cause any. Hey, and to his benefit, understandable, you know, I'm sure there's a lot of people who try and pull gotcha moves on him, et cetera. You know what I mean? So we're not trying all to. All the time, all right. the time. And, and kind of lure him in. And then, you know, like, I guess the most, the most recent one that was the most painful experience was during the publicity of Best Friends, where apparently a UK uh, interviewer was being, in his mind, in his eyes, disrespectful about his TV show uh, or series, uh, The Neighbors. And he wasn't very happy about it. So yeah, they they kind of ask him, then they, then they kind of, because they want to get reactions and then that's yeah, clicks. They're trying clicks to make him now. the butt of a joke because there's that whole kind of memory thing out there, et cetera. We get that, which uh, we wouldn't do. I'm fascinated by the dude. And honestly, as do-it-yourself filmmakers, I just think he's almost the American dream of it like it's like he's the personification of the american dream tied into filmmaking or whatever you know what i mean so he made a film yeah. that through whatever reason whether people think it's meritorious or because they appreciate the unintended camp or kitsch of it the thing blew up and he made a ton of money you know what i mean he invested a lot of money more than pretty much any do-it-yourself filmmaker working in the kind of space we do wood, but I imagine he probably made it back at this point. No. Yeah. yeah. So yeah. that's a yeah. feat in itself. So I honestly wanted to talk to him about all that, you know, so maybe someday I, know. I consider I him. A, I hope, I hope he, you he's know, a dream even, if I couldn't, if I couldn't convince him, he said, sweetie, sweetie, you know me better than anybody, you know, I'd not do podcasts. Yeah, right <laughs> like, well, and then when he said, you know me better than anybody, I was like, <gasps> like, I don't want the responsibility. <laughs> Well, his cohort, Greg Sestero, possibly might pop in here. We don't know. I 
really wish Greg would pop in here. I, you know, it's like we've had some incredible conversations um, talking about Tommy, but I just, <laughs> <laughs> well, I, 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 I know, I know this, this is, would, is going to be nothing but hearsay and, and won't be admissible in a court of law. <laughs> but I'm curious. I've, I've never actually asked you this. And, and with you and Tommy being close, I'm, what does he think of the room? Okay. Like, does he does know he work what he made, or, it, or does yeah. he think otherwise? He, he he's he will he will he of course Tommy. What's interesting about Tommy is Tommy. He loves to be an enigma. He loves to be a mystery. Now, for me, I I kind of am like, well, for someone trying to be a mystery, I can kind of see what's going on here, but. <laughs> Actually, Greg in many if if Tommy's an enigma, then Greg is a cipher. Greg is a very hard person to read. He really holds his cards close to his chest. He's sweet. He's like people say he's one of the nicest guys in this business. And that is true. That is true. But when you want to get into the layers of Greg Sestero, it, it still waters run deep. It's it's not easy to do. So again, Tommy, to a lot of people, that movie and that crowd is a punchline unfortunately so i could see them developing some kind of armor against that not wanting to divulge yeah. too much of who they really are etc tommy yeah yeah people tommy. wonder of course is that affectation or is that just who he is and i mean of course all fashion johnny depp's affectation you know what i mean fashion itself kind of is but at the same time it's kind of a artistic expression so my my favorite my favorite tommyisms, tommyisms. um well look let's let's answer the question for so the room the room for tommy is um truly uh his it's his masterpiece he's very very proud of it um he will tell me he told me how he developed the because there were a number of years where the room was not making money i mean it wasn't until after the first maybe six or eight years that the room it was a slow development of the cult following. And it started in Los Angeles after he had his theatrical run, which was not what people would call a financial success, let's say. I'm trying to be very, I'm, I'm treading carefully because if he, he may see this at some point and he's going to be like, sweetie, why you talk about me? He's not going to like this at all. But I mean, this is just history. Facts are facts. This Facts are facts. So he, exactly. So the facts are that after his theatrical run, he started screening it at the Wilshire screening room and uh, he would get the RSVPs based on the famous now giant billboard, which I do remember driving past on a regular basis on Hollywood and Highland thinking, what is this? Like, is this like a cult? I was like, I didn't get it. I, didn't, I was like, I don't know what this is. Is it, is it like, is it like some kind of a strange, like, is it like this side, the side group or I don't understand. Am I going to end up chanting in Big Sur if I go there? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> and coming back and having my, my apartment be possessed. And um, and I used to see his his face, too, in the landmark flyers and think, who is who is this? Who is this Tommy Wiseau person? Little did I know what was going to happen in my life. But um, so in at the Wilshire Screen Room, he would not have people buy tickets for the movie you bought a t-shirt and the t-shirt got you into the movie. And then the t-shirt was advertising, which if you really think about it, I see, people don't necessarily give Tommy credit for what a brilliant, brilliant marketer and businessman yeah. he really is. He wrote dirty laundry genius. day to, yeah, some marketing. That's good. Yeah, it was brilliant. And then it just started to grow. And he said, the fire marshal said, you know, you guys have to find a different place and that's, when they started doing theaters and from Los Angeles, he started getting offers for screenings in other cities. And it just sort of started to spread into many cities around the country. And then it started to spread to other countries. And so it, I mean, people can say what they want, but it's, it's a pretty, yeah. it, it's a pretty amazing and remarkable success story. I love it. And, and, you know, Greg's taking notes all this time. There was an incident where I was driving through Northridge I'm driving. So, I mean, there's only so much you can do when you're driving. And he said, and he was like, you record me. And I was like, uh, I don't do that. And I don't record people. Shit, 
And I, I'm driving through Northridge. I, I really couldn't if I wanted to. And then later, he said something to me one time where he was like, no, sweetie, I have right here. You say this. And I was like, you have right there. I said to Greg, is he recording me when I'm talking? And Greg said, oh, yeah, he does that. That's he how people that. project. Oh it's God. like gay he's senators. Like, have, uh, you know. He's like, I found tapes. And I was like, he's recording. I was like, what is this? The the Eastern European Gestapo or something? Like, I was like, what is he? Is that where so, he's from? Eastern Europe? What is it? Tell us. Well, OK, I'm not revealing anything because when he was on the Jimmy Kimmel show. Yes. And Jimmy Kimmel asked him where he was from. He said, he said, you know. I like to say New Orleans, but but, you know, I, I, I from Eastern Europe, but I pick New Orleans. And yeah. James Franco was like, whoa, this is new. This is new that he said that. So I, I, I told Greg recently that he and I are sort of the Luke and Leia to Tommy's Darth Vader, because I think aside from maybe some of his family members, we probably know him better than anybody else. I even know some details that Greg did not know about Tommy that Greg was pretty much floored by. Um, and he <laughs> oh, does not so normally should, warm up to people. So it's just, it's a very unusual situation to be in. And it's made things right. But I've learned a lot from Tommy as a result. I've but Tommy learned a came lot. to Hollywood fully formed. Like he was this, what he is now, like this enigma, or was it kind of like he developed this aesthetic first... and persona? I don't know. When he first came to Hollywood, he told me that he lived in an apartment with a guy who had a boa constrictor and he had a nightmare that the boa constrictor ate him. So he had to move out. And then he got his apartment that he and Greg ultimately lived in on Crescent Heights. And um, he was um, trying to be Johnny Depp, who I think he pronounces Johnny Depp. Johnny Depp, you desperately wanted to be, and he, and one day he came home and he's, he told Greg, I, I never be, oh, I never be Johnny Depp. And, and I don't know if he was fully formed, but he is such a unique person. Some of my favorite Tommyisms. Um, I remember one of the first times we talked, he said, well, they, sh they kill themselves in the foot. And I, or he said, or shoot. And I said, no, I like your the mixed stuff. metaphors. Yeah. Oh, and his mixed metaphors are great. He said, to me, he also said that that hit the nail in the coffin. And I was like, oh. yeah, I love yeah, it. It's, uh, it's so endearing and charming that I love oh, it. Dude. Oh, oh, oh. He's, and then he, and then he said, at one point, he said, they, that never see the light at the end of the tunnel. <laughs> it's like, yeah, that's actually true. My, one of my all time favorites, one of my all time favorites is, um, one of my all-time favorites is um, Money Doesn't Work on Trees. Oh, my God. <laughs> and I thought, yeah, you're right. It really doesn't. It actually really doesn't. Money doesn't work on trees. It doesn't. Um, There's always been this I, part of me that hoped it was some guy who's just from, I don't know, Montana or something. Pulling like, Remember when Joaquin Phoenix did that whole thing with Casey Affleck? Like that, it's just a troll, and he's really just this dude named Steve or something. You know what I mean? But I love, I love it more that it's the real deal. You know, it's more endearing that he's just genuine and is what he is. Now, you talked about him thinking that he made a masterpiece, right? Which he made a hey, masterpiece. Filmmaking, and, subjective, and whatever. But does he? he here's a question: Does oh, he yeah. think that the audience and all the money he's made off of it and the fame he's made off of it? Does he think that's because people think it's a work of genius or? I mean, it's billed as the worst movie ever by a lot of people who screen it at these midnight showings or whatever. Is he it... just says they don't know, they don't understand. They do not understand the brilliance of the room. Um, there are those who get the oh. brilliance of the room. Um, I am, I am really, I'm releasing secrets out, but no, the, the, it's like the, a Chauncey Gardner character from being it's there. Amazing. Yeah. It's amazing. It's, it's truly, I have to say that. There's definitely there will there has never been and never be ever will be anybody like Tommy Wiseau. Facetime him uh, right now. <laughs> I wish I I wish I could. I mean, if I did, he'd probably be like, "Sweetie, what you're doing to me?" <laughs> like I you just killed yourself in the foot, lady. I killed myself in the foot. <laughs> well, the first time he called me on the phone, I was watching the Disaster Artist in this room. It was on oh, my gosh. computer. And it got to the point where it was the James Franco scene where he's putting stuffing things in his pockets and the uh, I can't remember the woman playing Sawara Bright. I can't remember the actress's name. Mm. She was really good. Um, 
she was doing the wardrobe stuff and yeah you know he, he you know he she was like you're gonna take all that she he says sweetie i i keep my things in my pockets you know your uh you know continuity in your forehead okay the <laughs> the more i've known tommy the more i realized that that james franco's performance really deserved the golden globe 100 it was a work of genius it he calls me on the phone and he's like this is going i'm well i'm looking at the screen and he goes he goes sweetie you not mind me calling you sweetie how are you doing it tommy and i'm thinking it couldn't be anybody else but tommy and i'm looking at the screen i'm looking at my phone i'm looking at the screen i'm looking i'm like this is like some kind of crazy meta reality and ever since that's happened my life pretty much started to become that so i don't even know if we're so in a movie right ended now up in the and cult too yeah. we may be directed by tommy right now for all we know i don't know what's going on <laughs> he is on, recording but you but <laughs> yeah after all i mean i it's very, it's very unusual. And so um, I have a number of Tommy stories. My One of my favorite all-time Tommy stories is when he said to me, sweetie, sweet, because he says this a lot, uh, you, you, you hear about this um, where people fall in love with things like bridges. And I was like, okay, I've studied like six years of psychology and I read umpteen books. I've never heard of this before. And he said, yeah, yeah, it, no, really. He said, lady fall in love with bridge and she cry when they take her bridge away. And I was like, uh, okay, I'll just have to take your word for it. And he, then he said, he like, there was this pause and he said, I love my mannequins. And I was like, um, I hope these two things are not related. <laughs> Someone take your mannequins from you? Is he heartbroken? You know he, he's very, he, he just... And I, I want to make know. a movie now about like some Ann Dowd type woman who falls in love with a bridge though, and then someone takes it from her. That sounds fucking amazing, honestly. Does he that. does he keep all his belts on his mannequins? Is that yeah. what the mannequins are for? Are they belt holders? No, he there for his like his t-shirts and his jackets and oh my god, he, he dresses them. He dresses. <laughs> so he actually has like outfits. It's like a Ripley, like a wax museum or something of himself sort of i like fear for your safety <laughs> uh, does this enrich your life or do you feel like you're <laughs> caught in some web and you're like part of some weird little mini well, cults of personality I, I wrote i wrote a i wrote a um what i thought might be a film <laughs> that's becoming more of a series um and it is the long-awaited vampire treatment uh that uh and and we'd see now with the platform, the studio club, we would make this available only on the studio club platform. And so I figure, wow, do the math. If they've got millions of fans around the world and even a hundred thousand of them show up at $10 a piece, you know, you've got something. Uh. So I told Greg about this and I, 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 he's, he loves it. Um, Tommy will say things like, well, I, I make sure, uh, I make sure that it's good for my career. <laughs> yeah, okay. <laughs> awesome. And, <laughs> no, this guy's unbelievable. And I remember one time I was talking about another project I'm working on, and I said, well, your character would have to kiss my character, so I really hope that you're a good kisser. And his response was, well, I have to read contract first. <laughs> it's like a Harvey Weinstein contract. There's kissing in it? Damn. <laughs> So are you making this vampire thing? Oh my god. <laughs> it's scouting locations and stuff for it. Oh. So it's getting interesting and the thing is like because Are you going to rehearse the kiss and everything or are you just going to I might just go right into it just lay it on him, you know? It's like yeah. I don't know cuz I think Tommy's the kind of person where you don't want to over rehearse him. I think he's really good on yeah, that. Yeah. yeah. You know, the other thing I was going to say is that I often feel like I am in the movie of the room because Tommy is extremely competitive with Greg and Greg has a little bit of that. I mean, both of them, it's just like they're, they're kind of thoroughbreds who kind of race each other. That's kind of the, some of the basis of their friendship. And so if I've been talking to Greg, you know, or something and somehow the word gets around, cause I'll, I'll get a phone call and, and it'll be like, you talk to Greg, you see him, you know, like in a, an accusatory way. And I'm like, yeah, I saw him at a screening and he's like, you working with him? And I was like, well, we've been talking about that. Yeah. And he's like, okay, I have to go now. 
and then like i won't hear from him for a little aggressive while. yeah he's, he's angry with me and then um the other day he called and he was like how you like my voice today and i was like it sounds <laughs> i was like it sounds good and he was like you think i have something on greg sistero and i was like oh my god he just, please it's tell just, me some enterprising hollywood reality tv producer has come to these dudes how no. do you not do a no. ozzy osborne like a, no, this i mean is we should thing. be following and the two of them like this bosom buddies kind of competitive i mean that's a fucking reality show if i ever heard of it i i, I the can only tell thing you ever. this is the problem this is or, the well, problem a producer hollywood, just approached you about it hollywood it's does tough. not catch on like it's like it will copy things now and it will do like superhero and it'll do horror and 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 it'll do reality or it'll do limited series but it it like it seems to be afraid to like innovate things. It's like because because Greg and Tommy are like this this dynamic. They're artists for real, right. you know. And I'll say that to Tommy. I'll say you're a unique and talented artist. Because the thing is, I studied art history in Europe, and I grew up in a family of artists. So what I see about the room is it's like this brilliant piece of like you know cinema and performance art and. You don't know which side of the stage you're on half the time because the audience is participating. I think it's just genius. I don't I don't look at art as good or bad. It's art. So does it provoke people? Does it communicate something? Preach. You know, it's like I, I don't even place those judgments on. So I, I just think it's amazing. And That's brilliant. the other kind of thing I wanted to talk to him about if we had him on is that delineation between critical success and actual art. Like art is a form of expression. If you make a movie... And you're motivated artistically to make it it's art regardless of how it's received critically or whatever you know and oh it's for the it's, critical the rotten tomatoes of it all for that to really have such a heavy bearing on what people choose to see or not see and how they value things sucks it's commodification it's terrible you know? and a lot of it you have to keep in mind is industry driven because we as independent filmmakers don't have budgets that allow us to inflate our 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 numbers or whatever it is you know we're just kind of out there and we're kind of you know it's a thunderdome for us it's like whatever's gonna land is gonna land and you have to deal with all the peanut gallery stuff and i mean even the guys who did primer have to deal with this stuff they put stuff out that's great and people will be like oh this is just blah, whatever you know and the studios meanwhile are doing this stuff where they've got all these paid PR companies to throw like it's the best thing ever. It's always the best thing like ever that they're putting out, you know, which you go to see it and you're like, this is the best thing ever. This is like even close to the best thing ever. So we see much more of a dichotomy in this industry. When you look at the Sam Raimi's and you look at the Jim Jarmusch's and you look at the David Lynch's, I remember I attended this independent film and television Alliance conference where Eli Roth was the keynote speaker. So I got up at, during the Q and a period. Uh, and I think I was actually the first one up and I said, you know, we, you and I have something in common because we were both mentored by David Lynch. And he was like, Oh yeah. Yeah. And I said, I'm really glad I met you because your movies are really disgusting. And he said, thank you. And I said, but you're just a nice Jewish boy. And he was just like, you know, smiling. And I said, so what's your takeaway? What's like the most important thing you learned from David Lynch, from David? And he was like, oh, that's a great question. He said, well, when I was getting ready to shoot Cabin Fever, he said, David told me, focus on the donut. Don't focus on the hole. The hole is all like the negative stuff. And the donut is the movie itself. And he's like, I couldn't have scripted it better and i was like you couldn't have that's amazing he said but you have to keep in mind that in this day and age it's not like the days of david lynch like doing something really artistically amazing and then being you know brought into hollywood in fact it was my friend david schreiber who was the assistant to mel brooks what mel brooks had no idea who david lynch was uh that's why they hire these guys straight out of film school like david schreiber and he was the one who said this is the guy you should get to do elephant man you know, so I mean, this is the this is kind of the weird tiering of this business and as in levels and um, and Eli Roth said, yeah, that doesn't exist anymore. If your first movie out doesn't make money, like you're basically toast. And if you haven't been to the right film school or you haven't had the right this or that and the right agent and blah, 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 blah. You know, it's just it's gotten so much crazier than it ever was. It's so much harder to break through those walls now 
because it's weird though because you'll see like a Colin Trevorrow who started with something like uh what is that safety not guaranteed a small independent film and then he's recruited by Hollywood to go make Jurassic Park movies and shit or the guy who made Cop Car I think right ends up making Spider-Man movies and Chloe Zhao is that her name Chloe Zhao was when made father, a Marvel movie, you know. Well, her father was a well is a wealthy industrialist. I right. mean, she's another example of sort of the Matt Damon. Lena Dunham. Yeah, they know, got money. They come into. Oh, they come into it with massive gal gal got it. I mean, I mean, she they they basically told Patty Jenkins if you're going to make Wonder Woman, you make it with gal got it or you're you're out it. You can't do it. Amazing. I mean, she had her foothold in there. Uh, the, the, in a certain way, you know, and, and, and that's, and, you know, Mara Rooney, her father owns all of these yeah, you know, teams. Yeah. yeah, exactly. I mean, it's, it's, it, from the outside looking in the PR basically says, Hey, these people are just like us. And they, you know, they worked their way in and yeah, I'm sorry to say that's, it's a lot of crap. Uh, the, what's happening behind the scenes, uh, you really, you really have to partner up with the right agent. People think it's just about getting an agent. It's no, it's not about just getting an agent. Look at what happened to Dan Harmon. Michael knows Dan. I used to perform with Dan Harmon back when he was in the Dead Alewives. Um, you know, Peter Alberts and those guys, uh, Rob Schraub. And uh, he gets kicked off of his own freaking show. You know, I mean, this it's a really, it can be a very brutal experience for people. And you mentioned some of the movies that these people are working on, Jason. Uh, I know a very talented female director. I say female director because I'm gonna that that plays that plays a role because she is a female director. She actually has a certain foothold along with one other female director, Amber Seeley. And she was basically saying at one point her manager said, "Well, here's a job, and it's just a job, and it's just about the money." You look at some of these things that people are recruited to do, whether it's an actor, a director, a writer. They don't even necessarily like the material they're working on. It's the paycheck. Oh, it's yeah. I mean, that's paycheck. a classic one for me, one for them. Stars have done that for decades, you know, trying to finance yeah. a certain lifestyle and then be able to make that little artistic movie once in a while. The problem is the studios aren't making the one for them anymore, one for the no. actors. You know, and it's, it's hard uh, to go back. Patty Jenkins tried to do it with I Am the Night, the limited series. Right, she made Monster, awesome. right? She made Monster, and then she was doing a couple of television series for a while, kind of, and then, but she wanted to do Thor, but it worked out she did Wonder Woman, and then she tried to go back and do I Am the Night, the limited series, which actually borrowed a lot from my Project Night Rain (laughs) um, in certain ways. Yeah, once again, yeah. Thanks, guys. Just send checks. I don't need any more flattery. Just send the checks my way. But um, it it flopped. It uh, it utterly flopped. It's a it's very hard once you take the Faustian deal and sell out as an artist to try to then find that pathway again. It's not as simple as it would seem. So people think, well, I'll just get the big paycheck and then I'll go back and do, you know it'll allow me to do what I. It's not that simple. It's I mean, not I think that it used simple. to be, but the model changed. Like, did you see Matt Damon was on that, speaking of which, that Hot Ones show, and he broke it down. This was amazing. And he said he was talking to, whether it was an agent or some executive who broke it down for him, that what happened in Really Fucked Hollywood was the death of the DVD market because DVD was such a huge market that they could afford to take more risks at the studio level because they didn't have to make all their money back on a theatrical run where they split half with exhibitors, et cetera. They could make a Goodwill Hunting that'll make a few million, but then make 150 million on DVD or whatever down the road. And when streamers came along and killed DVD, well, when Netflix started making their own content instead of just shipping you DVDs, you know, that's what killed all of that. And all those little movies that actors would do, their one for me is gone. I would have to agree with that statement. In fact, I remember for us, and and this is something, I don't know if I ever told you this, Michael, but we had an offer from the, there was a company called Alchemy. I don't know if you guys remember Alchemy, but we had an offer from them. It was a six-figure deal for DVDs in Walmarts. They were famously, they were really good at getting independent films into places like Walmart and actually, and and selling them and getting them out to the, to the, main, to the main commercial public, even people who didn't always buy movies but they were there to maybe get something you know a t-shirt a a candy bar whatever it was and they had this big dvd section 
And um, Alchemy, that same year that we were being picked up, um, went to con market and started buying up all of these different properties. And what happened was they just tried to get too big too fast. And they ended up going bankrupt in June of that year. And it hit the DVD independent world like a, 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 a massive thunderbolt. It just smashed that avenue for ret- for getting your return of capital um, and streaming that streaming does not even come close to because yeah. I it's just too diluted and oversaturated. Yeah, yeah, and in fact, Liz Manashel and her partner I mentioned her earlier. Liz Manashel is working right now on a survey of filmmakers how many filmmakers uh, have actually made money on their films or even made their money back. And the last I checked, I think it was up to something like 87 filmmakers. And I don't think a one had yet reported that they had made their money back or even broken even. So like... this is not an unusual thing. This is the norm. And it, it and so Greg said to me, actually, because we were talking about it, he said, so, so what's the, what do we do? Like, what's the solution, of course? And the thing is, Greg, ironically asking this question, considering the boat that Greg's in compared to a lot of independent filmmakers. And my answer was, you know, it's like what I'm doing with my studio club project. And he said, so you do, we just have to be creative, very creative. I said, yes, basically we have to be, do what Tommy did, be as creative with your marketing as you are with your movie. Treat your movie like, a, treat your movie marketing like another work of art. Think of it that way and approach it from that. And I think that's probably going to be the best bet going forward for independent filmmakers. Because I'm sad to say that four walling, because I've done it, four walling is very expensive and very hard to make any return on streaming. Like I said, we're, I mean, if, if Liz is a success, as a filmmaker on streaming, we're like a meta, 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 meta success, you know, considering what the Scarapist was able to accomplish uh, last summer. And it's still pocket change compared to what you need to make as an artist, because of course, a big part of this is, I'm not not suggesting that all of us think we're going to become mega millionaires, but it would be great to be able to live and get to your next The creative middle class. Can you not make yeah. 40, 50, 60, 80 grand a year doing this? Does it have to be rags or riches? In light of all that, though, does it not even make more sense than ever to kind of do one for them and one for you? Like, if you're going to make, I've come to this conclusion, if you're going to make some passion project, something that you consider this work of art that you care about, you can't even tie it to anything fiscal. You got to yeah. try and make it as cheap as you can yeah. with as little outside money as you can. And it's this personal little thing that you own. But if you go and take that Marvel gig and you make a few million bucks to direct a Marvel gig, reinvest that like Mel Gibson did with The Passion of the Christ into your own project that you own outright. And you can then, you know, work at whatever budget point you want to allocate out of your own personal funds. But the point being, it kind of does seem like be mercenary, try and find some mercenary gigs to finance your own projects that you then don't even try to make money with. You just want... People to see, you could put it on YouTube for fucking free and people see your art or whatever. But the problem is when these independent filmmakers try and think they're going to make a living making movies that they care about and then have to convince the world to care about. You know what I mean? It's like, I'll it's, tell a, you. it's a bad game to play. I'm, I'm going to tell my kid as a creative, be an accountant and make <laughs> fucking movies on weekends if you want. I'll, I'll tell you, I'll tell you uh, what you just said is wonderful in theory. I would be curious to know, because I honestly don't know off the top of my head the numbers. Maybe you guys do. What is the percentage of artists and filmmakers? They're not doing it. They get caught who are, getting, who are getting the deals that would allow that. Because you know what? I'll, I'm looking at somebody like Amber Seeley, for example, who does wonderful independent movies. Jen McGowan, wonderful independent movies, low budget relatively low, low in terms of Hollywood. You're mm-hmm. talking about the one to four million dollar range, not necessarily low budget for like you know, WGA stuff. low budget, five million or less. Yeah, 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 exactly. Well said. Now, 
you're if you're doing those projects, you're not necessarily I mean, you might be making enough to make a very small project, but then you also have to look at ter in terms of time, because once you've got an agent who can get you into these projects and keep in mind that what happens a lot of the time with these kinds of projects now, it didn't used to be this way in Patty Jenkins early days, but it is more and more now when you're hired to write or direct you're already given a template. It's not like when we make movies, just whatever comes to us and we start generating that into, into you know, our material. You're basically told you're going to do this. You're going to do this. This is what the red box is looking for. This is what the theaters are looking This is da, da, da. And so the, the writer is kind of told what kind of story to write. The director, even this is even at the indie, what we, you know, industry indie, indie wood level. Uh, the director is basically said, this is your team and this is how you're going to do this. You're almost managing a set more. You get some creative license, but you're you're pretty much being told what to do. And so you're you're like you were saying, you're kind of making your your middle class or upper middle class living, depending on, you know, the budget level. Uh, there's not a whole lot of time uh, or even money for that matter to do these wonderful independent projects, the people who are doing the Marvel stuff, what percentage of people are doing this? This is a very, very, very small percentage. In fact, just to demonstrate the concept of this, um, Terry Gilliam, in a, I think it, the interview was around 2006, he said, you know, if Monty Python were coming up in the industry today, we wouldn't have made it. Because at our during our time, he said you had a, a pyramid, an upright pyramid, where you had all of this talent at the bottom and just a few suits at the top. He said yeah. now it's reversed. Now, it's now you just have a little yeah. bit. <laughs> good, that's good. You have this little bit of talent at the bottom, and all these suits making the decisions yeah. at the top. And I've dealt with these people. I mean, I've I've ha I've had you know, meetings, conferences, emails with Fox. I mean, you, you can't even get to a person without dealing with the attorneys, with the accountants, with, I think it was Steven Soderbergh who gave this wonderful uh, um, uh, introductory speech at uh, a few years ago. It was at the San Francisco International Film Festival. And he was like, we had this wonderful project, but then the numbers didn't work. The numbers didn't work. I mean, this is Steven Soderbergh, right? You know, and he said, but the numbers didn't work and we, you know, they didn't, we didn't want the talent they wanted and it wasn't going to work. And he said, and I, I can't name names because I like my cat and who would feed it if somebody runs me over and has me killed. But, you know, he's basically joking about it, but he's not joking about it. He's basically saying, you know, this is the business now. It's all number crunching. And yeah. what makes, sure. and, and the, when you're, when you're plucked, you know, it reminds me of Toy Story. He has been, the claw has chosen. You think it's such a wonderful thing to be plucked. And I suppose financially, it can be a really wonderful thing to be plucked. But you're going to be poked and prodded and told what to do. I mean, I, Amy Heckerling used to talk about this too, which she had to go through just to make Clueless. And you're talking about over 20 years ago. It's far, far more daunting. Yeah, than I think it you have to be was. realistic about that. That's all. I think you just have to say, when I'm doing one of those gigs, it is if what it is. Ever gonna it's do one it's of those about gigs. the money. Yeah, exactly. If you <laughs> want to be mercenary to, to finance your own. I mean, honestly, you still have to be put in the position for whatever reason, their number crunching has to, there's still some kind of, I wouldn't say a meritocracy because there's so much talent that would never get recognized by that system. But as far as it's more of a utilitarian thing, you know what I mean? If they feel they can make money with you, they will use you. If they feel they can't make money with you, they won't. That's not a judgment on you or your talent. It's a judgment on how commercial you are, which is a different fucking thing. You know? Which is primary clicks and hits now. But I do think else. you can be an artist in your own time and then, they recognize that there's some commercial aspects of your work or some part of you that could be commercial or the work you produce and they poach you or whatever. I think there is a way probably to wrap your mind around doing that job where you just look at it as a gun for hire and be almost that nonchalant about it. If Amy yeah. oh, yeah. really cares about Clueless, then it's going to be a problem. But if she just went into Clueless, it's like, this is a gig I got to do to go make 
my adaptation of Medea or something. You know what I mean? Then it's different. That's the idea. If you if you're if you're one like of those God. people blessed to be chosen by the claw, uh, and and it's and again, see, it's 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 fewer and further between those people being chosen. And, and like Eli Roth said, he said, and your first movie out better make money because you're not going to, in this business, he said, this is not a business of second chances anymore. You, you, but you want to be ready. I mean, it's, it, yeah, that's so yes. If, if the clock cho does cho choose you, <laughs> be ready to just say yes. And yes. And yes. Yeah. Um, Try and like sneak in as much of your art as you can, but to die absolutely. on Hills every day, it's just not the best way to go about it. Now I feel like, uh, my brother and I used to do this podcast and I brought Gall in because he's one of my favorite fucking people. One of the funniest, most interesting people, but we keep finding myself where it's a guest in myself talking. He fucking sits there. I feel like he's this nuke that never gets launched. Gall, why don't you tell me about how you guys met or something before this buzzer goes off and maybe I'm, we'll well, I'm just learning with, shit. I'm yeah, just learning. Right. I'm just enjoying listening to her talk. I'll um, tell you. Just... I'll I'm going to tell you something about Michael. So Michael's role was originally also a female character, but Michael so killed it in the audition that I had to hire him. I basically, and I didn't have to make a lot of changes. The, the role just, it kind of became his role. And the minute he steps out, he's that role. He's one of my favorite actors I've worked with, quite frankly. And I'm talking oh, yeah. about him. I'm like, he's not here, but I, I'm going to embarrass it. But I really, truly, I, he was one of my favorite parts of working on The Scarifist. Um, he's, he's been amazing. He connected us, which I think is really cool. I was, I'm so sorry Greg couldn't join us. Uh, this happened once before on a podcast. I was trying to get him on and he was like, like traveling like in like somewhere in Iowa or something and couldn't couldn't like didn't have reception or something 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 happens when you're traveling hopefully we'll be able to do it again I don't know that we'll ever get Tommy on uh maybe someday if he softens to podcasts maybe maybe I can you know maybe I can get him maybe, to do a print maybe, interview because I write a little bit for some places too that would be maybe um maybe I can yeah, that's that's a possibility over pods, I think. And yeah, and, and you know, I can be I'll try to use my feminine charms. They don't always work. But you know, I try. Um, so. Hey, Jay. Yeah. Uh, what? Where are we at buzzer wise? It's like minutes away. <laughs> okay. I have a question for G. Um, with you having navigated this whole, I made this small film and I'm trying to get it, you know, out there. We've got Cactus Jack coming out nationwide on October 4th. Um, we got distribution with a small distributor and we're going, it's going to be streaming on Voodoo and there's a Blu-ray release as well. You can buy it on Amazon. You can pre-order it right now on Amazon. But... Go to cactusjackfilm.com. Yes. Um, what advice would you give for uh... our next steps? Well, it sounds like you guys covered most of the steps. I mean, I don't know how much marketing, if, it's, if the di marketing is built into the distribution. I know often with smaller companies, it's sort of a partnership. I would, I would put as little money into the marketing and just gorilla the hell out of it. Basically, I would just like take out, you know, social media ads at a very, like maybe 10 bucks at a, at a pop or 20 bucks at a pop or something, Not, nothing really extravagant. Tommy would probably tell you, go to local cable and get ad. They very cheap, you know, just, <laughs> I would just, I, I, <laughs> I would, I, and, 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 you know, make sure stay in very close contact with your distributor. So you really know what's, what's going on. Like what, I don't know if you're doing like a quarterly payout kind of thing. That's kind of common. Yeah. But Liz, Liz Manashal will say this too, like really make sure that you stay in close communication with your distributor, especially for the first like six months to year and a half, because yeah. the life of a film is up to 15 years, which is why a lot of these contracts will ask for 15 years. Um, not, not all of them will, but a lot of them will. And it's because a, a film has a certain life and a certain trajectory. And, and so pay attention to that. You know, if there's controversy, take advantage of it. If people, I mean, this is what I do. If people want to like be like, oh, this is, you know, whatever. It's like, yeah, it is. Okay, we're going to use that. You know, Cheers. we're going to use that to push it forward. I would just use whatever tools you have at your disposal. 
um, but without spending a great deal of money. Um, it's quite a ride. And every film is, is, is you just don't really know how, I mean, you could try to predict, but how audiences are going to respond. Like if they're like, this is really offensive, be like, yeah, we're offensive. You know, if they're like, man, this isn't good. You're like, hey, this is actually awesome that this isn't good. This is what we're looking for. It's just, you just find ways to move with your audiences. You'll, you're, you'll find your audiences. Your audiences will find you. You know, it's, it does work that way. It's just, I, it's so hard to give advice and things like this because each movie is so different. <laughs>